Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm going to start today's podcast a little differently. I'm going to give you some clues. I'd like to see if you can guess who I'm talking about. Here we go. A man born in London around 1660, at the start of the Restoration, survived the Great Plague of 1665 and the Fire of London in 1666, educated at a Puritan school, intended as a minister for the non-conformist church, a hosier merchant, a supporter of freedom of religion and the press, a rebel and a soldier fighting against King James II, a confidant for William of Orange, soon to be King William III, manager of a pantile and brick factory in Tilbury, arrested for debts, imprisoned and declared bankrupt, arrested for political activities, punished in the pillory, where he was pelted only with flowers, and sent to Newgate Prison. A secret agent or master spy for the government, a husband of 47 years, a father to eight children, he has an island in Chile named after one of his creations, died virtually penniless. Oh, and one more thing, the author of Robinson Crusoe which has been printed in more than 700 editions, rivalling only the Bible. Did you guess correctly? I've been describing the life of Daniel Defoe, and I wonder if you had any idea before I mentioned Robinson Crusoe, which of course is one of only a number of novels that he wrote. It's intriguing, isn't it, hearing the facts of his life suggest that the man behind Robinson Crusoe was at least as colourful as the story he wrote. And yet his life isn't that well known in popular history. Defoe tends to reside in school and university English departments. And so it's particularly apt that today's guest is both a historian and an English professor who can weave together the literary and the historic to reveal the story of this fascinating character and his huge contributions to literature. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Alan Downey, Emeritus Professor of English at Goldsmiths University of London, Professor Downey's research interests range from literature to politics, including the history of the book, newspapers, pamphlets and the early novel. He's currently co-editing the Oxford Handbook of Daniel Defoe, which will be published later in 2022, as well as Defoe in Context, forthcoming in 2023. 
Professor Downey, welcome to the podcast. We're going to be talking about Daniel Defoe and what I think is his most famous work, which is Robinson Crusoe. For those who haven't read it for a while, could you remind us of the plot? What happens in Robinson Crusoe? Robinson Crusoe is the archetypal tale of a shipwrecked mariner on a desert island, shipwrecked on an island off the coast of South America at the mouth of the Orinoco River. He lives alone for 23 years before he finally rescues a man from cannibals and he names the man Friday. He and Friday live for another five years together before a ship comes which takes Crusoe and Friday to Lisbon and they cross via the Pyrenees to the French coast and come back to England. We'll talk a bit more about Robinson Crusoe in a second, but let's first we'll have a think about Daniel Defoe himself. What did he look like and how would you describe his character? Well, luckily we do have one portrait of him and it became an engraving for what he liked to think of his masterpiece, which is not Robinson Crusoe, but Jury Divino, a long, long, boring blank verse poem. But there was also a description when he was on the run from the authorities for publishing The Shortest Way with the Dissenters. And he talked about his hooked nose, a large mole near his mouth, and that he has a full wig, which he liked to wear, he liked to dress up. But the problem with Defoe is twofold, really. The question of what he wrote, I think it probably attribution issues are most severe for Defoe of any other writer, with the possible exception of Shakespeare, for different reasons. It's not a question of whether Defoe wrote his works, or whether Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare's plays, but how many of the works that have been attributed to him by modern scholars he actually wrote, because a lot of them were published anonymously or pseudonymously. The other major issue is that he didn't tell the truth. He contradicted himself. A 19th century biographer called him a great liar, possibly the greatest liar that ever lived, and he said he was a great storyteller in more senses than one, and you could hardly believe a word he says about himself without independent confirmation. And you can look at the works that we're now confident are by Defoe, and they do reveal a lot about his character, about his ideas, about his activities, but he contradicts himself within those works, and he also contradicts himself in the letters that he sent to his patron and employer, uh, the politician Robert Harley. And so you find that he says one thing in print and another thing in the letters to Harley. He also tells lies in the letters to Harley. So you have a big problem with deciding precisely what sort of man Defoe was. He was religious, but he was a liar. He was a tradesman, but he was accused of concealing his effects. And so his reputation among the dealers of the city is very foul. So will the real Defoe stand up is part of the issue we have with him. So he's extraordinarily enigmatic. Why do you think we should care about him? Why should people carry on listening to this podcast? What is so significant about him? Well, he is a remarkable man. The amount he wrote, the range of what he wrote. I'm not really a believer that he invented the novel and that Robinson Crusoe is the first novel, but that he influenced subsequent novelists and the development of the novel is unquestionable. So he is a fine writer, but as a source for what 
England and in a sense Britain because of course he commented on the passage of the Act of Union through the Scottish Parliament in 1707. He was sent to Scotland to report back on what was going on in Edinburgh and as a source of what was happening in England and Scotland in the late 17th early 18th century is absolutely unrivaled. The master historian G.M. Trevelyan in his wonderful three-volume England in the Reign of Queen Anne begins by saying if we want a survey of Queen Anne's England we turn to Daniel Defoe and we do that for two reasons. One because he did travel the country and one of the great books he wrote is a tour through the whole island of Great Britain and he did travel through most of the island of Great Britain over 20 or 30 years partly as an intelligence agent working for Robert Harley. He also claimed he worked for William of Orange and travelled through England working for William III. So you've got that aspect, but Trevelyan points out he sees his own land and he views his own age through a pair of sharp modern eyes. And the authority on Defoe's tour, Professor Pat Rogers, who's just published a new book on the tour, points out that Defoe sees England on the birth of modernity. And he's been called the citizen of the modern world. I wouldn't take that too far. He was very much a man of his own age at the same time. But if we want to know what was going on, on the ground, almost literally, and if we want to know how people behaved in the early 18th century, Defoe is one of the people you can go to. You can also go to Addison and Steele and the essays in The Spectator, but that's a very polite world. Defoe was not of that world. He was not born into the nobility or the gentry. Take us back to his birth, those first decades of his life. We're in the 17th century here, and it seems to be an interesting journey for someone picked to be a Puritan minister to instead becoming a hosiery merchant, joining a group of rebels. Can you tell us more? Well, yes. When he was married, 1st of January 1684, and the marriage licence, which, you know, exists, defines him as a bachelor, about 24, and a merchant. So he was already established in business by then, and he would only be in his early 20s. How he got the money to set up in business, we don't know. But his wife brought with her a dowry of £3,700, which is a sizable sum in the 1680s. He managed to fritter it away in various ways pretty quickly because that was in 1684 that he got married. And of course, in 1685, Charles II died. James II took over as king and James II was a Catholic. Defoe was a Protestant nonconformist, a dissenter did not want a papist on the throne of England and so he went to join the Duke of Monmouth's rebellion and fought at the Battle of Sedgemoor and he was captured. So that isn't the ideal way to prosper as a businessman. He was finally pardoned without condition of transportation in 1687 but then in 1688 when William of Orange landed at Orbay in order to protect the freeholders of England from the rampages of James II, Defoe joined his banner also. So he was neglecting his business through a large part of the 1680s. And then in the early 1690s, he committed a series of grave errors as far as his business was concerned, some of it fraudulent. So he failed 
for the huge sum of £17,000 in 1692. Now, it's very difficult to try to put £17,000 into modern terms. If you do it the simple way and take the retail price index and multiply it by the appropriate number of times, you get to about 3.8 million. However, the website measuringworth.com has various other ways of looking at that, and they suggest it could be, you know, £50 million or even higher. I think it's safe to assume that if you want a rough equivalent, Defoe failed for about between £3 million and £5 million. That's an awful lot of money for a young man. How did he get into that situation? Well, he claims, both at the time and subsequently, that he was ruined because of the war with France. There was a large privateering war going on in the Channel. The English had privateers also, but the French were largely using privateers, that is, private vessels that were commissioned by the Crown to take English shipping. And Defoe did insure English shipping during the war, which is a rash thing to do. But then one of the things about Defoe's character, which I perhaps should have mentioned earlier, he was a reckless man. He took risks throughout his life, some of them very dangerous risks. And so he was insuring ships in the war with France. He also evidently bought and sold ships. There's evidence of one because there's a court case about it. Whether he actually bought the ship is difficult to judge, but he certainly sold it. And he did the same with some civet cats, which were used for their perfume, because the civet that you get from their glands is used in the manufacture of perfume. And he sold the civet cats to his mother-in-law, but they weren't his to sell. So all sorts was going on in the early 1690s and finally failed in 1692. I think the main reason he failed was that he was just not keeping an eye on the ball as far as his business was concerned, and he was involved in too many dangerous schemes. But a lot of people were at the time, of course. It was the great age of projects, and he wrote his first large published work was an essay on projects in 1697. At what point did he become well-known in government and royal circles? Again, you have the problem of whether you can believe what Defoe says. In 1715, he wrote, when he was in trouble with the government yet again, he published an appeal to honour and justice, though it were of his worst enemies, where he claimed, among other things, that he became known to William III because of the publication of his poem, The True Born Englishman. And he claimed to have been, and I quote, beloved of that glorious prince. And he also claimed to have travelled throughout England in the 1690s, when he was in William's employ. Other people have questioned that. His contemporaries questioned it. Critics have questioned it. Again, contradictions between what Defoe says at various places. If he were indeed introduced to William because of the true-born Englishman, then he can only have known him for just over a year, because the true-born Englishman was published at the turn of the year 1700, and William died on the 8th of March, 1702, having fallen from his horse. So he claimed to have known a king, and he claimed to have known the difference between the closet of a king and the dungeon of Newgate within 18 months. People used to be sceptical about that, but there is a discovery that he was actually in the debtor's prison. He was in prison many times, and he was in the debtor's prison again in May, 1702, shortly after 
William died. How he became known to the ministers of Queen Anne and was evidently introduced to Queen Anne herself, she certainly pardoned him when he was imprisoned for the seditious libel because of a pamphlet called The Shortest Way with the Dissenters. Robert Harley, probably best known now because of the character in The Favourite, very different character from the person who is in the film, I have to say. But Harley was a leading opposition politician during William's reign. And when William died, he became involved with the Duke of Marlborough and the Earl of Godolphin, the two most important politicians in the land. And they were known as the Triumvirate. And when Defoe published The Shortest Way with the Dissenters, Harley advised Godolphin to find out who wrote it because he thought it would be good for the government's service. And I've often wondered precisely what he meant by that, whether he thought this man ought to be apprehended because it was a dangerous pamphlet, he was tried for seditious libel, or whether he actually had in mind from the beginning the thought that he was a talented writer who he could use. Anyway, Defoe was finally captured and he was imprisoned in Newgate. He was sentenced to be pilloried three times. He was fined 300 marks, which is a lot of money, and had to find sureties for his good behaviour for seven years, and he was imprisoned in Newgate until all would be performed. Harley arranged for his release through Godolphin, getting the Queen's permission, and Defoe started writing for Harley, and he wrote propaganda on Harley's behalf, including the seminal essay journal, periodical The Review, which he wrote single-handedly from 1704 to 1713, among many other things, Defoe is pioneer journalist. A journalist not in the sense of a reporter, but in the sense of somebody who writes leading articles. They're sort of like opinion pieces. And because he was a brilliant satirist, ironist, you know, I often think that some of Defoe's essays in things like the Review remind me of John Crace or Marina Hyde in The Guardian. You know, they're witty, they're devastating attacks on politicians and policies he doesn't like. So he became known to the government then, and he stayed in the government's employ, despite the changes of ministry, right through to the end of Queen Anne's reign. He was still in touch with Harley when Queen Anne died. One more question about this life of his, before we talk a little bit more about his work, which is that, is it in his role as serving Harley that he starts to act as a spy. One historian describes him as a complete secret service, and I'd like to know more about how he became a spy, who he was spying for, what he was involved with. I'm not sure whether what we would think of as a spy really describes what Defoe was doing, although when he was in Edinburgh, John Clark of Pennekick, who knew Defoe in Edinburgh, but he said that he was a spy amongst us, but not known to be such. Otherwise, the mob of Edinburgh would have pulled him to pieces. But the mob of Edinburgh didn't know he was a spy. He was sent by Harley. Harley was Secretary of State at the time, so... That's the equivalent of Home Secretary. There were two Secretaries of State, one for the Northern Department, one for the Southern Department. And the geographical distinction depended on whether they dealt with Northern Europe or with Southern Europe. And Scotland, of course, an independent country, was part of Northern Europe. So Harley sent him, during the passage of the Act of Union through the Scottish Parliament, 
just to give him an idea of what was going on, because we must remember that no newspapers to speak of, no telephones, obviously. How do you get information of what is actually going on on the ground in Edinburgh? So Defoe gets sent as a spy, as an intelligence agent, and because of Defoe's character, which we touched on earlier, he invented various disguises, various things he was supposed to be doing. He was going largely as a businessman and he was going to trade in salt and he was going to do this, that and the other. And that's how he sold himself to the population in Edinburgh. He claimed also to go back to William III to have been doing the same thing for William III in England. And before he went to Scotland for Harley, he also did a tour through first East Anglia and then the West Country and into the Midlands as far as Birmingham, setting up connections with people in all the market towns and even sizable villages that he could send political propaganda to in the forms of bundles of pamphlets. And we've got a record of the towns that he visited because one of the great sources of Odifoe is his letters to Harley. Huge number of letters right through from 1704 to 1714. And they're in the British Museum. They were part of the Portland Loan. They're now in the British Library additional manuscripts collection. But lovely bound volume, which gives us so much insight into what Defoe was doing. We wouldn't have half as much without that. Millions dead, a higher proportion of civilian casualties than in the Second World War. America, Britain, Russia and China all involved in a conflict that technically remains active to this day. So why is the Korean War of 1950-53 to called the Forgotten War? The North Koreans and the South Koreans, even today in the 2020s, they're still officially at war. This July, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out what this unique conflict was all about. From the halls of power... I've seen documents in the last week where the British chiefs of staff are telling Clement Attlee this might lead to World War III. This might be a nuclear war. To the battlefront. During the Korean War, the ship fired its guns far more than it ever did in the whole of the Second World War. Because that's what we were doing day in, day out. Join me, James Rogers, throughout July on the Warfare podcast from History Hit as we remember the war the world forgot. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. 
mentioned quite a few times different pamphlets, political writing that he has engaged in. When did he begin to write fiction? What do you think prompted him to branch out? If you're meaning Robinson Crusoe, that was 1719. We don't know how long he was spending writing it. He wrote very quickly. He wrote such a lot. He must have written very quickly, but he might have had it by him. He, at that stage, wasn't writing for Harley. Harley was no longer in power. Travel books were popular literature in the late 17th, early 18th century. William Dampier had published A New Voyage Round the World in 1696 and Woods Rogers' Cruising Voyage Round the World, which contained the Alexander Selkirk story, was published in 1713. But new editions of those books were published in 1718. So it's possible that Defoe, who always had an eye on the main chance, perhaps thought that he could profit from this by writing his own travel book. Because, of course, he didn't present Robinson Crusoe as fiction. He presented it as fact. In the editor's preface, he says, the editor believes the thing to be a just history of fact. Neither is there any appearance of fiction in it. And the title page calls it The Life and Strange Surprising Adventures of Robinson Crusoe of York Mariner, written by himself. So it wasn't a novel. It wasn't fiction. It was Defoe, again, his disguise, passing it off as fact, saying it was written by Crusoe, and this was a true story. So it was a true journey, not round the world, but down the coast of Africa, across the Atlantic to Brazil, and then back to the island. And in the farther adventures of Robinson Crusoe, he goes back to the island, then goes to Africa, Madagascar, Bengal, trading voyage to China, and then crosses from China right across Siberia to come out at Archangel. Quite extraordinary. So he wasn't thinking of writing fiction. None of the things that we now call the novels were attributed to Defoe on the title page. And in fact, Robinson Crusoe was the only one of the novels, as we now call them, that was known to be written by him in his own lifetime. It was only later in the century that Moll Flanders and Droxana and the Journal of the Plague Year were said to be by Defoe. So, in a sense, you can argue he always wrote fiction. As I said earlier, he published a lot of his work either anonymously or pseudonymously. And when he's writing pseudonymously, he adopts a persona. A very early pamphlet called The Poor Man's Plea, published in 1698, takes the nobility and gentry, justices of the peace and clergymen to task for not fulfilling their spiritual duties as far as the common people are concerned. And he writes as a member of the plebeie, as he puts it. He claims to be a common person himself, whereas mostly he liked to be taken as a gentleman. He added the defoe, the de defoe, to make defoe. But he claimed in this early tract to be writing as a member of the lower orders, complaining about the neglect the lower orders were being treated by the nobility and gentry. So in many of his political pamphlets, he's assuming a character. So he was aware of that sort of characteristic of fiction writing from early on. And it is, in fact, one of the reasons that critics are so interested in Defoe as a writer, as opposed to a source, 
because he developed certain techniques as far as narrative is concerned, and that influenced subsequent novelists. Walter Scott, who in many ways made the novel a respectable genre with his Waverley novels in the early 19th century, very taken by ingenious Defoe, as he put it. He thought that Defoe was hugely influential in the emergence and development of what by then was being called a novel. So the editor believes the thing to be just history of fact, neither is there any appearance of fiction in it, and Defoe is passing it off, Robinson Crusoe, as the real deal, a genuine voyage, a genuine story, and the reason he did that, it can be argued, is because he saw Robinson Crusoe as a vehicle yet again for propaganda. And what he was propagandising in Robinson Crusoe is colonialism. This is fascinating. So what we've got is something that's being passed off as a true story, and it may or may not have been based on a true story, but it does tell us something about the culture and worldview of the time, or at least Defoe's take on it. Absolutely, and two principal features. One is the colonialism, the other is religion. If I deal with the colonialism first, Defoe was fascinated by the subject of trade throughout his life. He began as a merchant. In the final issue of the Review in 1713, he said that trade was really the whore he doted upon, and he would have liked to have carried on writing about trade, and in fact did in the 1720s. And he carried on trading in the 1720s. He was still trading towards his death, even though yet again he was being pursued by his creditors. So he was interested in trade, and he was worried about the decline of the wool trade. He was a strict mercantilist. He thought that you had to export more than you import. And he thought that the English economic stability depended on the woolen trade. Now, I think this is probably out of date. It certainly would have been the case in Tudor times. And when he's discussing the wool trade, he goes back to Henry VIII and so on. But by the 1720s, I don't think the woolen trade was the main driver for English trade. But what he advocated in Robinson Crusoe and in other tracts, was the founding of English colonies, not only in North America, but in South America. In Patagonia, in particular, he was keen on establishing a colony in Patagonia, but also it's crucial to take into account where Crusoe's Island is. It's off the mouth of the Orinoco River, opposite what is present-day Guyana, and of course became a British colony, also a French colony and a Dutch colony. And what he was suggesting, I think, was that if a colony was founded there and run on what he saw and we would describe as mercantilist terms, then the home country would prosper. It's a very fertile island. Even though it's hot, it's not too hot. Crusoe can survive there. There aren't any wild beasts that are going to devour him. When he goes back to his island in the Father Adventures of Robinson Crusoe, he finds that the colonists that is left there, the people who had mutinied from the ship that finally takes him away at the end of Robinson Crusoe back to Europe, 
they're still there, but they're not prospering very well. And he said, if only I had taken some goods from the home country, which they could have used to set up the colony, they would have been able to grow shiploads of good rice, that's what he calls it, could have exported it back to the mother country. The mother country itself would have then sent more goods that could be used on the colony. And so you would get this trading idea set up between England and the colony. He had the same idea as far as the North American colonies were concerned. And you could argue that he's even thinking in terms of India before India was really getting going as a British colony. One of the striking things about the book Robinson Crusoe is the fact that Crusoe behaves avant la lettre like an Anglo-Indian colonist. He takes no account of the conditions he's facing on his island. He behaves like an Englishman, down to having his country house and his townhouse, the original cave that he lives in, and then a country house that he visits. And he behaves as if he is an Englishman living abroad. I think it's fascinating that this is, if you like, the colonial mentality, which genuinely developed in the 18th century. It has its other side, of course, as far as the uncomfortable elements are concerned in the 21st century. And undergraduates now find Robinson Crusoe quite difficult to deal with, not only because of Defoe's prose, but because of the treatment of Friday and the nascent imperialism, which seems to be embodied in it. And of course, Crusoe gets shipwrecked on his island because he leaves Brazil to go and get slaves in Africa to bring back to Brazil. Very uncomfortable reading. So let's talk a bit about those two things you've mentioned. First of all, the treatment of Friday. Can you characterise that for us and remind people who might not have read Robinson Crusoe for a while what that looks like and what we should make of it? The classic account of the rise of the novel is by Ian Watt. And Ian Watt said the music of Crusoe's Il Joyeuse was very functional. It was Crusoe saying, no, Friday, and Friday saying, yes, master. It's very much the colonist in charge, the master, and the indigenous people being subservient. I think one of the most telling things about Robinson Crusoe, the book, is that Crusoe isn't interested in Friday's name. He says, right at the beginning, I'll call you Friday. And all he teaches him is yes and no. Friday can't really speak proper English by the end of the book. It's just pidgin English. He's not interested in Friday's thoughts, apart from the fact that Friday has some incipient notion of religion because Friday's tribe worship a person called Benamucky, but he's not actually interested Crusoe, and one assumes Defoe in what the indigenous population believes, thinks, how it survives. The other important point about Friday is the description Crusoe gives when he first encounters him, the stark naked Friday, and he points out that he doesn't have tight curly hair, he has a long hair, he has straightish hair. He quite clearly is an American Indian, and Crusoe and Defoe seem to share this idea, and this is part, I think, of the mentality of the early 18th century, of a hierarchy of human races, so that 
the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant is at the top of the hierarchy and it can run all the way down to the Hottentots and Bushmen who seem to be at the bottom of this ladder, this great chain of being. And Defoe treats the races along those lines as indeed Crusoe does. Crusoe rescues a Spaniard and so there's three people on Crusoe's island and he of course is king of the island as far as he's concerned. He's discovered it, he's conquered it and so everybody should pay obedience to him. So there's Crusoe, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, there's the Spaniard, Roman Catholic, Mediterranean, then there's Friday. When in the Father Adventures he visits Madagascar, Crusoe says that these are not sociable, tractable people. We cannot plant a colony in Madagascar. So he's always thinking of the use that the European can put to other races as part of the colonial mentality. And of course, it's the missionary spirit again. That's where the religious aspect of Robertson Crusoe comes in. The Crusoe teaches Friday the true religion, which is Christianity. He says at one point that Friday is in many ways a better Christian than he is. That's the two things to Crusoe, the book, the incipient colonialism and the fact that it is in some ways a religious book. The first time Defoe was identified as the author was fairly early on in its life, in 1719, by a fellow writer, fellow antagonist called Charles Gilden, and he wrote, published in 1719, The Life and Strange Surprising Adventures of Mr Daniel Defoe Hosier, and he suggested that Defoe had only introduced the religion into Robinson Crusoe to turn it into a five-shilling book. Five shillings was a lot of money, because religion doesn't really seem to enter into the book until he's on his island, which is quite a way through. And then he draws various religious significances from what happens on his island. For instance, his disobedience to his father, which he finally calls his original sin. And you get a Puritan pattern emerging. He disobeys his father, his God, in various ways in the course of the book. So he's punished. There are a series of punishments. The final punishment being his shipwreck on the island. He has to repent. Eventually he does repent. And so he's finally delivered. And what I always find curious about the deliverance, although perhaps we can find a Christian significance in this if we want, which is that Crusoe is financially better off at the end of the book than he is at the beginning, despite his 28 years on the island. You mentioned also the nature of his prose. And I suppose we need to think a little bit about that and also kind of the fact that there isn't much of beauty, either aesthetic or moral beauty, in the story. It's given as this kind of factual objective account. Why do you think Defoe chose to write it in this way? If he's passing it off as the genuine account of someone who's lived on a desert island all alone for 28 years, who isn't a writer, who hasn't had much education, then this is perhaps how he would write. He wouldn't want it to have polished periods and rhetorical flourishes. But I think you can also view two aspects of Defoe's own character in here. One is Defoe wasn't educated at a university. He did have a Puritan outlook. He was suspicious 
of metaphor and simile because that wasn't actually speaking the truth. He's defined what he thought ought to be an ideal style, a perfect style, and he suggested that it was the way one man speaking to a wide audience could be understood by everybody, idiots or lunatics accepted, he said. And so he's writing in a plain style. It's thought to have had a great influence on subsequent writers, this development of a plain style. The other very interesting thing about the way that Defoe writes, though, is that he writes as if he doesn't know what the next sentence is going to do. It's actually been called the improvisatory sentence. Lots of subordinate clauses. And he forgets sometimes where the sentence has started. That could be viewed as a detraction. But the other way that subsequent novelists have viewed it is that it's in some ways anticipating what eventually would be called stream of consciousness technique. And it's interesting that James Joyce and Virginia Woolf both greatly admired Defoe's prose style and Woolf called Maul Flanders and Roxana two English novels which we can call indisputably great. I think this is partly down to the fact that what he's doing is impersonating the person down to the fact that he's just thinking what this person would say next or, if it's part of the adventure, what they would do next. And with Robinson Crusoe, he sometimes does that. Remembering also, it's always that it's retrospective first-person narration. So the person is remembering what happened on the island or Malthander's remembering what she was doing. That gives rise to the possibility of unreliable narration, that there are actually two stories going on here. There's Crusoe telling his story, and there's another story as the reader comes to appreciate that the narrator isn't always telling the truth. So we have established that Defoe had an enormous influence on literature since... But tell me a bit about the other things he's writing, conduct manuals or geography. You know, why is Defoe writing such a broad range of topics and styles? He is interested in them for a start. The epithet that tends to be used about Defoe by his contemporaries, and it was there in the obituary in the Grub Street Journal and subsequent writers in the 18th century through to Scott, was ingenious Defoe. And he was ingenious. The essay on projects dealt with banks, with academies for women, with roads, with communications. So he was, in many ways, the spirit of the age as a projector, wanting development. And of course, if he was going all the way around England for Harley, if not for William III, and noticing how changes were taking place in England and Scotland, but mostly England. He said that he claimed to have been to every county, one accepted within the last 20, 30 years. So he was interested in all sorts of developments, including economic developments. He had an uncomfortable relationship with his religion, I think. He was a professed dissenter and he didn't like hypocrisy and he satirised his own fellow dissenters for the practice of occasional conformity when they used to take communion in the established church once a year to qualify for office. He thought that was dreadful. He didn't want any of that. He thought that people's manners were getting worse 
by which he meant the morals, you know. So one of the reasons for his conduct book, The Family Instructor, narrated in dialogue, interestingly. He never wrote a play because he didn't like the theatre, because, again, a Puritan distaste, I think. But The Family Instructor is written in dialogue, and there's the master of the household, and he's got apprentices, and he's got his wife and his children, and he talks to them about how they ought to behave and he instructs them, and in turn he himself is made to think about how he ought to behave in this age as a religious man. And the family instructor sold very well. It actually sold, in terms of editions, very difficult to know whether you can trust editions, but it went through more editions than any of Defoe's novels other than Robinson Crusoe. So again, he might have been trying to make money out of this. He appears to have made money out of Crusoe, which is why perhaps he wrote the other so-called novels. The tour through the whole island of Great Britain, again writing in the 1720s, again it might have been the prospect of making money. And then he turned to what, as I've said, he claimed to have been the whore he doted upon trade. And Perhaps he was sufficiently well off in the middle of the 1720s, in his mid-60s, to write things like a plan of the English commerce and contribute to the Atlas of Maritimus. He no longer was writing political pamphlets. He no longer was contributing to journals and writing the review three times a week on his own for over a decade. He could turn to what really interested him, and it's why Trevelyan and Pat Rogers and others have seen Defoe as so important in pointing forward that he was saying, look, this is where we're going. And the Atlas Maritimus, like Robinson Crusoe, like his final narrative, A New Voyage Round the World, again, totally made up, but he has the unnamed narrator actually go all the way around the world. He wants to know what's going on in the unexplored areas of the world. So a new voyage around the world, the narrator crosses the South Pacific in Defoe's head 50 years before Cook did it. And he hopes to find islands because there was a continent in the South Pacific balancing the continent in the north, wasn't there? That's what Cook was after. Didn't find it because it's not there. Defoe imagined it and he sent somebody and that person went through the South Pacific. His imagination was extraordinary. He is a remarkable man. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about Daniel Defoe. And it has just been so interesting to get an insight into this extraordinary and enigmatic man and his work. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Not Just the Tudors. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It seems about time, frankly, that you got a chance to speak to us too. So we have belatedly launched a Twitter account, which is at Not Just Tudors. Please write to me on there and say what you would like to hear podcasts about. Or if Twitter is not your thing, we also have an email address, which is notjustthetudors at historyhit.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess, and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.